นโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสังสวัสดีครับ I've been scanning through the Sunday papers that Tom kindly brought us again tonight, and wondering what might be a suitable subject to talk about. And one of the things that has occurred to me is this: well, what is glaringly obvious to all of us is the rate of change that there is around us, and it's a, it's something that we've all heard so much about. It's it's almost too obvious to mention, but I think it is worth. Considering how our spiritual practice equips us to deal with the rate of change, and whether in fact the way we are practicing is helping us, because it's not guaranteed that just by believing in truth and being a good person that it's going to help us get around in the world. I mean, the world's not altogether. Conducive, is it, to being peaceful? It's not the world's not a necessarily terribly friendly place. Even the parts of the world that are not having awful wars or famines or anything else are full of all sorts of flashing lights and wonderful smells and just desperately trying to tempt us into some sort of relationship based on money, usually, like the the smells that you get when you walk down the high street. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the uh, scientists now have mastered the art of capturing fragrance. And here, there's this thing they do: they put a little glass cup over or whatever they want to get the fragrance, and they capture it, the molecules of the fragrance, and then they analyze them and synthesize them and reproduce them, and then market them and sell them to people who want to get our attention. So, for instance, when you open the door of a A brand new uh, car, the lovely smell of leather that you smell is probably synthetic. Even if it's got real leather seats, it's probably synthetic. Or when you go into a supermarket, that lovely smell of freshly baked bread—it's quite likely synthetic, because one of the interesting things the scientists have found out is that we respond more dramatically to the synthetic smells. It associates with something real, like leather or freshly baked bread, but we have a, a stronger reaction to the synthesized version of this fragrance. So anyway, that is a little example of, uh, if we need it, to remind ourselves of how much stimulus there is around and and how challenged we are really to deal with an enormous uh, amount of changing circumstances. And uh, the very real question is. Does what we're doing in uh, what we call our spiritual life help us or not to do that? I think this is worth thinking about. So one of the things, obviously, to uh, flag up at the beginning is is the central importance of in Buddhist teachings of of the fact that everything is in a, a state of change. That, that sometimes we set out on a spiritual quest or a Spiritual path, looking for something that's going to make us happy, 
but we equate happiness with uh, feeling safe. We don't feel safe, we don't feel secure, and so we feel unhappy, and that's normal. And so then a spiritual teacher comes along and says, well, you'll be happy if you feel safe, and to feel safe, just believe in me. I don't mean me, of course. Whatever the spiritual teacher or the teaching is saying, believe this and you'll be safe. Now, fortunately, Buddhism doesn't say that. The Buddha didn't say, believe in me, quite the opposite. He said, don't blindly believe in what I say. Take these teachings and test them. However, we can still pick up the Buddhist teaching with a similar sort of hope that it is going to make us feel safe. And and certainly it's the case, at least personally, I found that the Buddhist teaching, I can't find any fault in it. Not the straightforward basic Buddhist teaching. I've questioned it very deeply and, and thoroughly and there's nothing that I can criticize or, or find fault with. And so I could just just kind of have a concept of Buddhism, that Buddhist teaching the Dhamma is the answer to everything. I've questioned it, I can't find any fault with it. So I could believe in Buddhism and then that belief could make me feel safe. Now I mentioned that at the beginning of this consideration of of learning how to accord with change because if we if we do approach our Buddhist teaching like that and it's understandable that we might do at one stage we're setting ourselves up for big disappointment because even believing in something that's true if it's only an idea if it's only a good feeling we have about relating to something true it doesn't actually doesn't make us safe it might make us feel good probably all of us have had the experience when we read the Buddhist teaching or found teachers or started our initial practice we just say yes great yes 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 this is good and then we feel good feeling and, and, and we, we can grasp at it we can cling to it forgetting that Buddhism 101 is grasping leads to suffering and we can forget that and we can cling to the good feelings that come with our initial introduction to Buddhism. So I think to start with we need to really flag this up and say right, Buddha's basic teaching is that everything's impermanent, change is all around us all the time and there's nothing wrong with it. So any idea we have that it shouldn't be this way, that things shouldn't be changing is something that we, something extra that we add to our predicament and that can be creating suffering for ourselves. So if we can appreciate that from the beginning, then when we do find ourselves perhaps resisting or having a bit of a hard time, hopefully we're, we're encouraged to, instead of go out and criticize the rate of change, we can come back and, and just say, well, how was it that I was relating to things that has set me up for this disappointment? I find that sometimes here in the monastery people come here and they they criticize they criticize me because I changed the layout of the calendar. They they got used to a certain style of calendar and then some people criticize me because the calendar was too predictable. And they said, "Well, the calendar is too predictable. It's the same thing every year. Why don't you change it?" And we'd like to write on the calendar. It's so pretty and 
posh looking that we can't write on it. And so I thought, well, that's a good idea. And several people seemed to think it was a good idea. So that we changed the layout of the calendar. Don't want to just feel like you're stuck in the same old thing, just for out of habit. And several people seem to think it's a good idea. So we changed the layout of the calendar so that you can now write on it. And I thought, well, while we're at it, we might as well make it look a bit cheaper because it looks so posh, it makes it look like we're wealthy, which we're not. And here we are giving away this posh, expensive calendar that people can't write it on, so that doesn't seem to so we'll change it. And it all seemed terribly reasonable to me, so I changed it. Cheaper paper and that you could write on, nice layout, nice format. Well, did I get some flack for that? Because it turned out that people didn't want change. Some people didn't want change. They wanted it predictable. They wanted it always the same. Now, it's, of course, only a small thing, but there are things in our life that come along that trip us up because we've got used to a certain way of, of operating. And from a practice perspective, the, the thing to do when we find ourselves being tripped up is to, to question, say, well, what am I hanging on to? Or how was I relating to that in a way whereby I've created myself some suffering? Culture shock is another thing. You go to another country and you start feeling anxious or, or whatever. I find when I go to places like Czech Republic, have you ever been to Czech Republic? You can't read anything. I mean, you go to France where you at least read what the words say, or Italy or Germany, you may not be able to pronounce it very accurately, but at least you can read it. You go to Czech Republic and, I mean, or Russia, these countries you can't even read and I know when I go to Czech, when I've been to Czech Republic, I feel quite insecure because I can't relate to it. Now, that's interesting, actually, that feeling of insecurity. There's nothing wrong with the Czechs. <laughs> There's nothing really wrong with the food's quite good, the weather's quite nice. But just something really unfamiliar, like the language, can trip us up. So when something like that happens from a practice perspective, the wise thing to do would be to stop and and they say, Why, what was I hanging on to? And how was I relating to it in a way whereby it set me up for this disappointment? And remembering that everything's changing and, and clinging is what's causing the suffering. And changing of conditions is not what's causing the suffering. A few days ago, I went into, into town with somebody who'd been staying at the monastery for a while and they commented on how having been at the monastery for a week and then suddenly going into the city was really disorienting, you know, really disorienting. Yeah. It reminded me of my early days of when I was living in Thailand at Wat Nana Chat, living out in the country and amongst the trees, you got a little cootie in the woods and crickets and squirrels and bats flying around and Nothing terribly interesting, a very mundane day in, day out, a very simple life. And then occasionally, for whatever reason, I, I would be, have to go into the local town, Warin or Ubon. And guaranteed, I would always come back to the monastery with a splitting headache. Absolutely splitting headache. I used to find ways of trying to dismiss it. Like I've been too busy or making up some story about worldliness, those heedless town people don't know how to live peacefully or something. But the reality was that I was so stuck on my peaceful environment 
that when the environment changed, I couldn't accord with it. And of course, Ajahn Chah was was totally intolerant of that kind of uh, an attitude to practice, as you've heard me say once or twice before. I'm sure he used to he used to say, "If you can't practice in the city, you can't practice in the forest. If you can't practice in the forest, you can't practice in the city." Because city people be the same. City, and we have it here as well. Sometimes people from the city come out, and it's too quiet. They can't stand it. They go funny. They they go quite peculiar sometimes because there's no noise. That's because they get used to noise. They get used to noise, we get used to silence. And if our getting used to it is a heedless getting used to it and we attach to it, well then we can't adjust. He also used to, Ajahn Chai also used to say, when monks would complain about having been sick or too busy, they've been asked to do work or, or they've been unwell, whatever, they say, oh I can't practice, I've been too busy or I've been unwell. And he'd say, if you can't practice when you're sick, you can't practice when you're healthy. In other words, the idea that practice is a set of circumstances that we find agreeable, that's, that's not the Buddhist approach to practice. That's a preferential approach to practice. That's my way. That's not going for refuge to the Buddha's way. The Buddha didn't have any problem with changing conditions. He said everything's changing and had the wisdom and the agility of attention to be able to accord with the changing conditions. And it was a great privilege to to live with somebody like Ajahn Chah and the other great teachers who've been around and been at the practice for a few years to be able to witness this incredible agility of being. That whatever the conditions were, they were able to somehow adjust as a whole person. They weren't attached to being peaceful. They weren't attached to being moral. They weren't attached to being wise they weren't attached and so whatever was coming along they were able to adjust and accord with those circumstances. There's that wonderful axiom of Buddhist practice that says accord with conditions without compromising principles. I think that's, that's the most wonderful definition of practice. How to train ourselves to be able to accord with conditions without compromising principles. When I was young, I used to pride myself being able to accord with conditions, change, go with the flow, but I tell you, I <laughs> used to compromise a few principles here or there. There were also people that I met in my life who were very principled. They really knew about spiritual principles and they were very good people, but there was a, there was a certain sort of, sort of rigor mortis set in, a bit premature rigor mortis they didn't seem to know how to flow they didn't know how to enjoy life they, they didn't know how to smile or laugh or flow with the changing conditions of life but if we can remember that accord with conditions without compromising principles I think that's a very helpful approach to, to life life circumstances circumstances are changing how can we train ourselves to accord with them but not just according to them, remembering also stay in touch with the true principles. That we believe that there is true principles in life. There is, there is such a thing as integrity, morality, that there are certain standards of conduct of body, speech and mind that if we compromise them, there will be for sure painful consequences, the very least of which will be the loss of self-respect. 
We believe in that. We trust in that. We have faith and confidence in that principle. Or the principle of generosity. No matter what's going on, that if we're generous, if we're kind and generous, there will be benefit. Even if other people think that we're weak and they try to take advantage of us, or we feel like I haven't got enough to give away, we still give. Or we think I haven't got time to be kind and patient. I, I talked with somebody not so long ago who was a very committed meditator, very committed, had a regular meditation practice, and they go on meditation retreats. But at business, in their business situation, this guy is actually a bit of a tyrant. And he has all sorts of problems at business. And I, he was explaining to me the way he runs his business. And I was surprised because he's always going on retreats. And, and I, I started saying, well, why don't you apply such and such a principle to your workers? He said, no, no, I've always made a very, very strong point that this is practice and this is business. So that kind of dividing our life up to spiritual and uh, I don't think that's certainly not what the Buddha was talking about. He was talking about mindfulness throughout the whole day and night. We have the Buddha images in the four postures of sitting, standing, walking and lying down. Here we have a, a sitting Buddha and sometimes you see pictures of the Buddha standing or walking or sometimes also lying down and the message of the Buddha in the four postures is that there's an opportunity for awakening if we're mindful in all the four postures. In other words, in all our activity, the, the encouragement in our practice is to be mindful throughout all of our activity. When Ajahn Chah got his new temple built a few years ago and the people, the lay people wanted to offer a new Buddha image for his new temple, he said, I want a standing Buddha image. He says, most people think that practice is sitting down. He says, I've seen lots of chickens sitting for a long time, but they didn't get enlightened. So I want my Buddha image standing to remind my monks and nuns that sitting all the time is not practice. And it was a radical deviation from the norm. You go into his temple and you see this great big standing Buddha. It's not what you would expect. But it is an encouragement, an encouragement for us to practice in all circumstances and practice means being mindful in all circumstances sometimes we think practice means being moral we can get focused on that but you can be so busy worrying about morality that we, we don't notice that maybe somebody sitting next to us is unhappy and having a bad time be so busy worrying about our moral precepts and not telling lies and not nicking things and, and being responsible and so on and so forth that we forget to actually see that somebody right next to us is having a really bad time. Well, if somebody's next to us is really having a bad time, from a practice perspective, the appropriate thing to do is to ask, what can I do to help? That's, that's the compassionate and suitable response. Or maybe we perceive practice as being you're getting peaceful. That's an easy assumption. If we're unpeaceful and and then we pick up the Buddhist meditation techniques and little contemplation and we find it's possible to, to actually establish the mind of peacefulness and it's such a relief. It is such a delight to touch into this, this inner calm and this warmth and well-being that's so utterly natural. There's nothing more natural than a peaceful mind. 
But then if we're heedless, we can grasp at that and think, oh, that's the point of practice, is being peaceful. And so then we come out and you're in a complex, confusing situation. There's all sorts of people demanding things and having opinions about things and presenting you with complex problems. We can easily assume that there's something wrong with the situation and judge the situation as responsible for my suffering. Well, that's not the practice perspective. The practice perspective is how can I adjust if it's my responsibility and my place to be able to deal with these complex situations and complex issues? Well, how can I adjust my practice so that I can do it? Sometimes it comes down to the basic attitude that we have, as I said in the introduction to the meditation this evening, the attitude with which we approach practice. If we approach practice remembering the last time we sat meditation was so peaceful, I got so happy that I'm going to sit down and make my mind peaceful again now. I've often heard this said with people teaching meditation. Now make your mind peaceful. I just want to say, get lost. Making your mind be peaceful, that's not... You try to make the mind peaceful, it's like trying to make a screaming child be quiet. Try and make a child be quiet, well, it screams more. I mean, maybe the child just needs some kind attention. Give it some kind attention and then it settles down again. Well, so it is with our mind. If we just apply kind, patient attention to our minds, then our minds stop screaming and become peaceful naturally. But if we approach our meditation with the idea I'm going to make my mind peaceful, I remember what it was like in the past, and all going well in 10 or 15 minutes' time I can make it peaceful again in the future, that approach is coming from the idea, the fixed idea, attachment to the idea that practice is being peaceful. Yes, we have an aspiration to bring about peacefulness of heart and mind, understanding when the mind is peaceful, the heart becomes strong, when the mind is clear, then intelligence and compassion can function naturally. We understand that and we aspire for that, but the way in which we approach our practice determines whether our effort is going to be fruitful or not. So any fixed idea we have about practice, if we, we have a fixed idea that practice is being peaceful, well then when confusion comes along, darkness comes along, pain and suffering comes along, we see, well, I'm failing. If I was a good Buddhist, I'd be happy. I'd be peaceful. I'd be together. And then when you feel all completely untogether, afraid, neurotic, anxious, what do we do? We judge ourselves as failures and wrong. If we establish our practice on mindfulness, yes, we observe the moral precepts, but the guidelines, the, mind, the moral precepts are guidelines for practice. They guide us in a direction. We establish ourselves in a commitment to live by the moral precepts, and then we let go, and then we practice mindfulness in the moment, here and now. And if that's our practice, well, then there's a chance that whatever the changing circumstances are, we will be able to accord with them. Our mindfulness will be there. We'll be able to see... How can I adjust to this? How can I give my attention to this situation? Like when the computer goes all you know, upside down. You know, just, you know, I don't know what you like with your computer, but sometimes my computer just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It really, it's XP. I've got XP now. Old 95 or 98 like we used to have. XP. Somebody gave me an XP. And it's really supposed to do such and such and sometimes it just won't do it if we're so focused on 
getting what we want out of the computer, then we can't really pay attention to it. So I find that when I, if I can just let go of getting what I want out of the computer, even though I know I want something and I want it now, I don't have to wait, that's the truth, but if I let go of that, and just say, oh, it's not doing what I want. Oh, it's not doing what I want. And then a solution comes up. It's easy. Pick up the phone and call Jayamano over. And then <laughs> he comes over and he fixes it for me. He always fixes it. I don't know how he does it. He just walks into the room sometimes. Sometimes it's amazing. I don't know how this works, but I can do something, one, two, three, and it will not work. I'll go one, two, three, it will not work. I'll do it ten times, it will not work. I ring Jayamano up. He walks in. I do, look, I said, look, Jayamano, look. One, two, three, and it works. I don't know why it is, but it's a good teaching. Basically, if we're holding on to anything, if we're clinging to anything, we're going to suffer. So with regards to the challenges that we're all faced with, whether it's personal, relational struggles, where change is often not welcome, or whether it's the political situation, and change can be very threatening, the environmental situation... I mean, anybody who's got eyes to see and ears to hear knows that the planet is under threat. This is not hearsay. There, there really are real issues with water, with oil. You don't have to know very much to know that our whole economy is based on oil and the oil is going down. There is real grounds for concern. But how do we accord with these challenges? If we're fixed on anything, if we're blindly clinging to anything, then our intelligence is compromised, our peace of heart is obstructed. Conversely, if our practice is established on here and now judgment-free awareness, if mindfulness in all positions, in all situations, is our commitment, well then there's a chance we will be able to accord with the conditions without compromising principles. So I offer you the thoughts this evening for your consideration.